the hand carts could move faster than the wagons. Now, you wouldn't expect that to be the case, but because the wagons, you've got all of this cattle and the hand carts are, you bring the bare necessities, but you can move in a faster way. You're not going to have much when you get here, but the charity of the saints when they come is going to be a great blessing. Welcome to the Saints Podcast. I'm Ben Godfrey. And I'm Shailen Back. Thank you so much for listening. Today, we're going to be talking about Chapter 14 of Saints, Volume 2, Hard to be Separated. It's been our tradition in the Saints Podcast to introduce you to lots of people from behind the scenes, historians, writers, editors. And today, we have the opportunity to meet with another member of the Saints team behind the scenes, and that is our producer, Kurt Dahl. Welcome, Kurt. Thank you. It's great to be here today. Kurt has been our producer on all of the Saints podcasts. He's had an opportunity to read Volume 1 and Volume 2, and we have some really cool family connections in Chapter 14 that we're excited to discuss with you today, Kurt. Our story starts off with Jacob and Anne Eliza Seacrest, and maybe you could just remind our listeners where we are in the story, where's Jacob, where's Anne, and how are they trying to get back together? Well, the listeners will remember that Jacob left on his mission and Anne was pregnant with their child. And they exchanged a letter on the plains to figure out what the name of the child was going to be. And so you think of this great missionary who's going out and you expect that he's going to come back and have this um, great reunion. And he does come back. He's been on his mission for three years and they haven't heard from him in, in nine months. She sent letters to, to uh, London. She sent letters to Switzerland because they don't know exactly where he's at. Can you imagine that? Having your missionary be gone for three years and not know where they're at. Right. I think it's hard for us to even imagine a little bit. As bad as postal service was, like when I served my mission, it certainly wasn't three years. And today with just text and email and even missionaries being able... You can able, video chat every week. Yeah. It's incredible. Yeah. So it's kind of hard to just put ourselves back in that time. The Analyza really doesn't even know where her husband is. But now he's on the trail. He's on the trail. He's, he's brought a, a group of about 400 Scandinavian saints, and they have left and they have gone. They sailed across the Atlantic, and they land in New Orleans. They take a boat up the Mississippi River, up, the, up to the Missouri to Fort Leavenworth in Kansas, and then they get to Mormon Grove, which is uh, also in Kansas. This is a place where sometimes they stop and they earn some money and they get outfitted for the journey. And I loved it in the book. It says that there weren't a lot of deaths along the plains, but here, for whatever reason, in Mormon Grove, there was uh, an outbreak of cholera and uh, Jacob Seacrest dies from cholera. For me, it has a personal note in the fact that my great-great-grandfather was in that company. They arrived at Mormon Grove, and my great-great-grandfather's brother was also one of those who got cholera and died in Mormon Grove. Wow. And so it puts a real personal perspective on it when you think of these uh, pioneers coming over that, that maybe, you know, maybe it was just more of a vacation for them. I don't think anybody really thinks that. Right. But what a stressful thing. And so Jacob Seacrest, who's leading this, now turns it over to um, Noah Gaiman, and, and he then leads the party into the Salt Lake Valley. But a real tough time when you think about Jacob and Anne being separated and not ever being able to be reconnected in this life. Well, and she received a letter from him, I mean, after his death, 
that had been delayed, obviously. And didn't it describe some gifts that he had for the children? Yeah, or? this was particularly touching to me that he had collected these little swords for his little boys. And, of course, he didn't get to deliver them. But they were delivered. But they were delivered. And in fact, the company had, I think, had so much great respect for Jacob Seacrest that they wanted to bring his body back from Mormon Grove to the valley so that he could be at least mourned in a, in a proper way. But obviously, they didn't have the, the means to keep it preserved. And so that he was buried on the trail. And this is incredible from Annaliza. She says, it looks hard to be separated from those that we love most dear on earth. But when I contemplate what they are sent for, even to assist in rolling forth the kingdom of God, I have no cause to complain or murmur. So wow. as difficult of a position as she's in, she's able to, I, I think, have the perspective of he was, or he did what he was called to do. And I don't know. I just think that she's an incredible person. That's incredible faith. After they leave Mormon Grove, they make their way across the, the rest of the plains until they arrive near the Salt Lake Valley. And on September 6th, 6th they get themselves ready. They kind of clean up, put on their best clothes. They're, they're basically in rags at this point. They put on their best clothes because they're going to enter into the Garden of Eden. They're going to come into the valley. This almost must be mythical in their minds how wonderful it's going to be. And what did they see, Kurt? They found desolation, and they found grasshoppers by the boatload. As far as the eye can see, can you even imagine? In Utah, there's been a little bit of an influx of grasshoppers in this summertime, but I can only imagine what the entire valley would look like just being covered with grasshoppers. And these are people who came from pretty lush Scandinavian countries, and right. I can only imagine what they must have thought when they saw what they're going to be living in. <laughs> I'm sure it was a bit of a shock for, for them and for others who came along that it wasn't quite yet the blossomed rose as it would be eventually come to be, you know, prophesied and come to fruition. But a difficult first look into the valley. Kurt, as you were reading the chapter, and we were talking before we started our session today, you were reading that the day that this company entered the valley and it sparked a memory of something you had read. Can you share with our listeners a little bit about that? Yeah, so my great-great-grandfather who was part of that company, as it says that they left Mormon Grove and they finally got to the valley, in the book it says that on the 6th of September they camped just outside of the valley and that's when they decided they were going to wear their best clothes and look get all dressed up and everything. And then it said on the 7th of September they came into the valley. As I was reading the biography of my great-great-grandfather, it says he arrived in the valley on September 7th, 1855. And so it's just, so cool. it's just amazing that, uh, you know, those details are so true. Everything in the book Saints, of course, has documents to prove it. And yet here in, in my own family, I've got a document that suggests exactly the same thing. I, I loved it when you shared that story because I think there's many, many church members who will have similar experiences that they'll be able to reconnect with family details. And even for those of us who don't necessarily have pioneer ancestors, it's wonderful as we are adopted into this great tradition, this great legacy we have of our pioneer forebears. And Kurt, your ancestor, did you say he was baptized by Johann Dorius? He was baptized by Johann Dorius. Okay, so Johann Dorius has family members in this company as well. Can you tell us about their story? Yeah, so uh, Johann has ancestors in this. In fact, it's his father, Nikolai. 
And Nikolai has three daughters with him on this trip. And two of these daughters pass away before they get to the valley. And Nikolai's wife is still in Denmark at the time and has not joined the church yet. But Nikolai comes over and um, two of the daughters pass away. But it's those trials that cause us to just think the faith of these people were, were remarkable. We have another couple that is moving back to into the story, and that's George Q. Cannon and his sweetheart, Elizabeth Hoagland. Tell us a little bit about their story and, and what happens here in chapter 14. Well, it's great. George Q. Cannon, of course, is a, a great name in the early church history, um, returned from Hawaii, and one of the first things he wanted to do was to marry his sweetheart, Elizabeth Hoagland. And so the temple wasn't built yet. It was being constructed. But the saints needed a place where some of those ordinances could be performed while they were waiting for the temple. And so we know from previous chapters that uh, some of those ordinances were taking place on Ensign Peak. But then they built a house called the Endowment House. And in the Endowment House, they were able to participate in endowment, participate in sealing. It was uh, just recently dedicated when George Q. Cannon married Elizabeth Hoagland. And then they were immediately called to go to San Francisco to print the uh, Book of Mormon in Hawaiian, which he and Jonathan Napala had uh, translated. So he takes his new bride and they go on a mission together to print and publish the Book of Mormon so they can take it to Hawaii. We have a drought condition in 1855 and Joseph F. Smith is receiving letters from his sister who is here in the valley. He's on his mission in Hawaii, and she's sort of telling him about how hard it is to be living here and all of the difficulties they're facing. Can we talk a little bit about Joseph's response to her and, and changes we've seen in him thus far in the book? Well, remember in a previous chapter where Joseph F. was white hot. Yeah, white hot anger. <laughs> he had white hot anger because here's a, a young man who when he was five years old, his father Hiram was murdered and he came across the plains with his mom. His, he didn't feel like his mom had been treated as well as perhaps she should have been. And so here's a young man with a lot of anger and, and we've all seen 15 year olds that are angry mm-hmm. and they're not fun to be around. But this is how Joseph F. Smith described himself. But while he's there, his sister has been mentioned, writes, and he writes back to her and says, through all these challenges, he says, be a Mormon out and out. And I just think that that pretty much sums up in a very few words what his attitude now has been. It's amazing to see this kind of transformation from kind of being this angry young man off to the side to now he's almost this fatherly sort of figure to his younger sister and giving her advice saying, you know, stand up for what you believe in and uh, it's all going to work out. His is a wonderful story that we're going to follow in future chapters and one that I think our listeners and uh, the readers of Saints are going to enjoy. One thing that was mentioned that Martha Ann Smith, who is Joseph F.'s sister, I thought it was interesting. He said that she very seldom remembered seeing her mother smile. And of course, we know Mary Fielding was uh, Mary Fielding Smith, the wife of Hiram. You can imagine that there was probably not a lot to smile about in in some of those days. Hard, hard times. It was sweet because the kids say 
they just tried to make her laugh. And when she laughed, it was just a treat because she just had gone through some horrific things that are hard for us to imagine. Um, But they said that she was an incredible woman. And I thought it was sweet from this story that he told her to not fight with her sisters and listen to her older siblings. And then he said, be sober and prayerful and you will grow up in the footsteps of your mother. And I just thought that was a really sweet thing for a teenage boy to say to his younger sister and something for her to really work toward. Yeah. I thought that was amazing. Pretty mature thing to say for someone who's maybe 18 years old at that point. Absolutely. Absolutely. In the valley, we've had these drought conditions. What's the economy like? Well, you can imagine they're in a place where there's not a lot of traffic at the time, 1855. This was not exactly the crossroads of the West at that moment. And so they're still trying to get their footing economically. And it's not going all that well, to be honest. The crops have failed. They found that the weather conditions can be very, very harsh and can cause, depending on what kind of winter you have, it really impact what your harvest is going to be. And so they've come across across some tough times. The grasshoppers are eating a lot of things. And so the tithes and offerings were, it was not viewed upon as it is today, I think. We all know the story of Lorenzo Snow when tithing was really put to the test. But so they were in tough times economically. You can imagine, I think that it would have been very easy to just say, you know what, I just don't think this is going to work. Right. And something I connected as I was reading the book that I hadn't thought of before is that their economic situation impacted emigration to the area. And so tell us a little bit more about that. The book talks about the perpetual emigrating fund. So tell us how their economy is affecting missionary work, basically. Absolutely. It's not unlike Today, in some regards, is that to do missionary work, it takes the faith and the funds of faithful saints. And they had an immigration fund. And obviously, when there's not a lot of money to be made, there's not going to be a lot of money that's going to be put into that. And I do love when Brigham Young, in the book, it talks about uh, Brigham Young, who pled for help from the saints. And he said, this is true charity, not only to feed the hungry and to clothe the naked, but to place them in a situation where they can produce by their own labor their substance. It is kind of an interesting thing. And I think that's, it remains part of our culture today that yes, we have a welfare program and it is an amazing asset to the church and something that we can feel very good about as a people. But part of our program is helping people to help themselves. And it, and it really goes back to this time when Brigham's telling them we're going to help people, but we're going to make sure that they can take care of themselves. I find it really inspiring that we think about all of the challenges they had from a physical nature, all the challenges that they had from economy and all those things. And yet really at the core of everything was their testimonies of Jesus Christ. And when they talk about charity, they're talking about the charity of Christ. No matter what circumstance we might find ourselves in, it does come back to that. And they were great examples of that. Absolutely. Part of the situation as you were bringing up Shaylin, this perpetual immigrating fund provided assistance whereby new converts could come, and it was not inexpensive to outfit a company. In fact, in order to get a wagon, a team, and it wasn't just the team pulling, the, you, you know, you had many cattle that you were bringing along with you, and all the supplies basically that you're going to need because you're leaving civilization behind. And the saints don't have the funding necessarily. The people that are converting don't have a lot of money. They're poor. They're leaving the things that they do have and, you know, following the invitation to gather in Zion. So a new idea comes up here, an idea that sometimes is hard for us to understand, but 
in this context, it sort of finally clicked for me about why this would be tried. So first of all, let's play a little clip here from the book where we can learn about this new idea to come across the plains. Let all the saints who can gather up for Zion and come while the way is open before them, the first presidency declared. Let them come on foot with handcarts or wheelbarrows. Let them gird up their loins and walk through, and nothing shall hinder or stay them. This idea for handcarts, why? And I'll tell you what I think, but why do, what, what do you guys think about why would they do this? One of the things that I found interesting is that the handcarts could move faster than the wagons. Now, you wouldn't expect that to be the case, but because the wagons, you've got all of this cattle and they're actually bringing a lot of goods with them. The handcarts are, you bring the bare necessities, but you can move in a faster way. You're not going to have much when you get here. But again, the charity of the saints when they come is going to be a great blessing. Speed for sure has to be part of it. Well, and also the expense, because you think about purchasing the oxen, purchasing the wagons, and then the oxen have to eat and <laughs> you have to find places to water them. Anyway, I just can't imagine the expense that that would cost. So it's definitely a cheaper way to go. Absolutely. And I, that's the two things that I came away with as well. If you go to history.churchofjesuschrist.org and you look under the historic sites, there's a section on the handcart historic sites near Martin's Cove. And there's some wonderful material there that helps explain this. But it really was cheaper and it was faster. Yeah. And as weird as that sounds to us, a lot of the people from what I've now understand, even those that came in wagon trains, it was uncomfortable to ride in those things. It's not like they had shocks that were good. Mm -hmm. So they actually walked alongside anyway. This was a way to get here fast and cheap. And as we're going to learn in future chapters, for the first three companies that came through, it worked pretty well. And then there's going to be some really, really hard times, which to this day are a source of strength and faith for the church. Not something that was easy, but something that we remember with great reverence. Again, showing the faith that they had and the conviction that they had, that's the lesson I think that I learned from it. Well, Kurt, thank you so much for joining us today and for sharing such personal insights, especially with regards to your ancestors. Thank you. It's been great to be here. And thank you all for listening. Uh, we appreciate you coming along with us, and we encourage you to look at saints.churchofjesuschrist.org to read further into topics, especially that we talked about in this chapter with, we mentioned the handcarts and people and events and places. You can also let us know what you think, and you can email us at saintspodcast at churchofjesuschrist.org. I'm Shailen Back. And I'm Ben Godfrey. Thank you so much for listening.